Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 47 of Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatile. Today is a very special episode. We're doing something real different here. So today is episode where my guest turns the tables on me and interviews me. But just before he does, we're going to give him a few minutes in the spotlight. So I'd like to introduce a very special guest. He's the founder and CEO of Louisa Voice in Waldwick, New Jersey. He's also a writer for the Tech Talk section of Meadowlands USA with a subscriber base of 10,000 readers. It is my pleasure to welcome Peter Crowdle. Welcome, Peter. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you doing today? Good. Fantastic. So we're getting to the close of the summer season, getting into Labor Day. Are you doing anything special? No, other than uh, other than biking, and uh, we're going to try and enjoy the um, the cool the cool weather. And um, and I think this weekend we're going to we're going to bike uh, down to the Hudson River and and back again. That's, That's really uh, nice. Yeah. Yep. That's beautiful. So, Peter, tell me just a little bit about Louisa Voice. What is it, and what do you do there? Well, the original objective was to build um, uh, really great telephone systems for small and medium business at um, um, at affordable prices, and both in terms of the installation um, as well as the ongoing port costs. So that's that's where we started. And um, and we started uh, actually prototypes um, and small installations in 2010, and then I started doing this full time in 2013. And um, and we work with um, open source uh, software. I'm a contributor to one of the open source software streams. Um, it's called uh, SIPXCOM. And um, and we also work with open source firewall technology, and uh, so we kind of bundle the two together, and um, and it creates a real low uh, cost footprint uh, for a telephony server. And then uh, all the customer has to do is buy the phones, and they usually get their payback in about under a year, versus a, um, a hosted environment uh, such as what you would have from a carrier such as Verizon or Optimum or Vonage, who uh, basically charge you on a per user per seat basis. So if you have six users in, in, in your small business, you pay six times 30 bucks, 180 bucks uh, a month uh, just for the phone service. And what we kind of do is we say, why don't we create this thing called a SIP trunk back to a carrier and you can buy that at about a buck a month per, per trunk. And then you uh, basically buy, um, particularly for small businesses, uh, you buy your minute, your voice connectivity on a per minute basis. And um, and that's where you really drop the your ongoing support costs from uh, from 180 to 200 to 300 dollars a month. A small business might pay in a hosted environment, and you're getting it down to under 50 dollars per month. So when you look at those economics um, within the course of a year, the customer usually pays for any of the upfront capital costs. Sure, you know that sounds like an amazing business model you have, and. Besides seeing better cost savings from, let's say, a hosted model, it's actually, it sounds like it's a, a lot more competitive than, say, a traditional phone system model as well. 
It is because there's no licensing costs involved. Our, our original business model was to say, um, why don't we sell on a per user basis? And then we didn't charge for support. And we moved away from that and we said, really what we are is a professional services company uh, focused on telephony and core IT business. And uh, I can explain what we mean by core IT in a moment. But really what we're doing is selling our uh, professional expertise to uh, small and medium businesses. Any equipment that we buy for them we don't mark up at all. Often we just get the customers to order the equipment themselves. They just order it. We assemble it. We put it together. It's a really low cost environment. It's And not just a low cost, but you know, in today's highly commoditized industry, uh, this is a major differentiator where you're not focused on nickeling and diming the customer and getting them coming and going, you, you're, like you said, you're selling your expertise, and that's something that is a differentiator in this industry. Absolutely. Fantastic. So, Peter, how did you get started with this? <laughs> so, I um, worked uh, for 30 years for Nortel and Avaya, and one of my um, last projects, uh, or one of my projects in the mid-2000s, was basically looking after a voice for the cable industry and uh, and repurposing the large centralized voice switches that Nortel was putting together, uh, repurposing them for cable. And what that means is that we'd have to take the requirements for packet cable, which is the cable consortium in the United States and Canada, and take their standards and build them into the switch and then do all the integration with the cable modem termination systems and cable modems. And so we basically build a cable lab where the development was taking place in Ottawa, Ontario. And we integrated with um, cable modem termination systems to build that solution. And one of the things that came out of that was SIP trunks. And I got very fascinated by that. And one of the projects that we had with a company uh, it was called Adelphia at the time, and they were in Chapter 11, and they wanted to get into, in, into the voice business um, just as all the other major cable companies were introducing voice. And they said, but we don't want to worry about the facilities, having to put in facilities to every central office where we want to offer service. So why don't we build a SIP trunk and connect that to a major carrier such as Level 3? And Level 3 at the time uh, had this uh, business called AOL that they were supporting uh, with all these dial-up uh, modem banks. And <laughs> their traffic was starting to diminish, and they had all these facilities to all of the central offices. So what Adelphia said to us is, can you take your voice switch <laughs> and integrate it via SIP trunks into uh, Level 3, and uh, then we have instant connectivity. And so I did all of that work, and I just got fascinated with SIP trunks ever since. And then when I started doing uh, consulting for Nortel, I was leading a technology consulting team. Many of our business cases were all around how do you move an enterprise from uh, TDM-based facilities to SIP-based facilities, and how do you uh, centralize a lot of your connectivity? So instead of if a, if a bank had 2,000 branches um, or somebody like FedEx that had connection um, to every office that they supported. And he said, well, instead of doing that, why don't you just centralize all of your connectivity to uh, the voice network by a SIP? And by doing that, you're actually lowering your um, reoccurring monthly costs for uh, buying uh, telephone facilities. So that's how I got into that. And then in 2010, uh, I was asked by a church 
um, the church I was attending, they said, you know a lot about telephone systems um, and our telephone systems falling apart. Can you propose a replacement? And that's when I got into um, open source telephony and dragged my sons with me. And uh, my sons and, uh, and ourselves started forming Louisa Voice. And um, there's a history to Louisa Voice, the name. We used to have a summer cottage uh, up in uh, Lake Louisa, Quebec, and that I maintained for many years. And we formed the company up at Lake Louisa one weekend. We were sitting in the uh, uh, on the balcony of our cottage, and we said, you know, let's let's do this. That is such an amazing story. So, you were inspired by your vacation and uh, by your summer cottage, and you brought that inspiration back to your daily life uh, yep. by naming your business after that. Yep. And not only that, my two sons, they learned so much from the business. I learned a great deal from them. The whole PSN, the open source firewall technology, that's, that's Jason's work. We put a, we have a, we're a Microsoft partner and we have uh, a Microsoft stack, a domain controller, a Skype for business. And Kevin took hold of that. And in fact, is uh, he just changed and got a new job uh, in New York City as the lead Skype architect for a major gaming company based out in New York. And uh, so both my sons learned just tremendous skills and developed tremendous technical skills by the work we did together. Yeah, for sure. So, Peter, what keeps you motivated every day? Um, I love what I do. I love working with the technology. I love working with uh, this protocol called Session Initiation Protocol. I love working with people. And so that keeps me going every day. And although sometimes it's a little scary being out on your own um, and you're wondering where the next contract's going to come from, where the next paycheck is going to come from. On the other hand, it's... Um, it's very re rewarding because you, in a certain sense, you're, you're controlling your own destiny. For sure, yeah. Uh, you know, and it's important to stay positive during uh, through the ups and downs. So I, um, several times a day, I go through these sets of affirmations uh, that keep me humble, keep me working hard, keep me positive, and keep me motivated. And, you know, let's just take a moment to talk about that because there's this statistic that a person says to himself something like 50,000 words a day, uh, which is basically a book. And, okay. you, you know, you're, you're basically reading a book in your head the whole day. And when things become challenging, right, uh, there's two ways to look at it. You know, you could beat yourself up or you can, you can raise yourself up. Yeah. And, you know, who wants to, who wants to be beaten up, right? It's such an amazing tool that you have, you know, that you raise yourself up, you, you take perspective of what's going on, and you give yourself the encouragement to, to get through it. Exactly. Nice. Uh, you know, let's just talk a little bit about the ups and downs because, uh, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs you know, that are going through struggles and everybody always learns from our guests uh, in how they manage the ups and downs. Uh, is there anything noteworthy that uh, you may want to share about uh, some of the struggles you went through? The things I repeat to myself every, every day, it's Sweating the small stuff, worrying about the details. Um, I, every time I go on to a customer site, I always ask myself, um, or I take on a new project, what can go wrong? And I say, can I prepare for this beforehand? What are the things that I, um, if I don't know something 100%, how do I um, just prepare myself 
for every eventuality so that when I'm at the customer's uh, site, uh, the work that I'm doing goes seamlessly. It it, uh, goes smoothly and everything uh, goes the way it's supposed to go. So so I do a lot of sweating the detail and trying to to test things, particularly when you're working with open source technology um, and you're working with new releases and you're doing upgrades. There are lots of things that can sometimes surprise you, but you can you can learn to, to minimize that. You can learn to, uh, to test against that. And I'm just working with a um, uh, with a large client in the Midwest at the moment, and, and actually helping them build out um, a large enterprise voice system using the same open source technology that I deploy into small business. And the lead engineer, and she's very very experienced. I'm I'm kind of training her and, and on the disciplines of here are all the questions that you need to ask yourself as you troubleshoot a problem, right? And uh, so this morning she called me up and she says, you know, the, this one user, their phone is um, uh, for some reason is not registering to the voice server. And so I walked her through, you know, what are all the questions that you need to ask yourself and what are the things, all the things that you need to, to check. And I always remind myself, um, you know, I'll go through these affirmations with you. The one is, in a, is a quote from St. Augustine, and it says, hope is two beautiful daughters. Um, one is named anger at the way things are, and, and, and the other is named courage for the ability to turn that anger into something very positive. Because my tendency and some of my character is I take a lot um, before standing up and saying enough's enough. And so I, I, uh, I use that as a way to basically say it's okay to be angry as long as you channel that anger into something positive at the end of the day. And then the second affirmation that I always remind myself, and this keeps me humble, is um, inner peace comes from profound sense of forgiveness, both of, of others, but especially of yourself. So when you make mistakes, you need to be able to say, okay, I made that mistake. Uh, I'm sorry. And even if you, the mistake wasn't your own fault, it somehow has some some impact with um, to others. I'm um, never too big and I'm never too proud to be able to say, I'm sorry for how my mistake made you feel. Or, I'm, you know, even if it wasn't my mistake, I'm sorry that this happened. And usually what I find is that that helps me in terms of saying uh, uh, reduce the amount of uh, I could have, I should have, um, all the second guessing and the questions that you ask when you make a mistake. Um, you you, you kind of say, no, no. It's okay to forgive yourself. It's okay to forgive the other person, and life moves on. And then, you know, the the last thing that I always remind myself uh, is that every day, um, enjoy life's moments as it comes, because you never know what tomorrow will bring. So, uh, learn to smile, learn to interact with others, learn to ask lots of questions. And those are things that I reinforce in myself several times a day. That is very deep and profound, and that's something that I will be uh, listening to over and over again. Yeah, yeah, it is. I've learned it the hard way, so it's taken it's taken me uh, sixty one years to you know to get to this point, and um, you know, and I hope I have uh, many more years ahead of me. Absolutely, and, you know, life is life is a journey. We're constantly learning every day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fantastic. Peter, who would be an ideal customer for you? So an ideal customer would be a customer that's just building out a new office, opening up a new restaurant. I I did two restaurants where they were just building them out for scratch and 
put in their phone systems. So, so that would be an ideal customer. Another one would be uh, customers that whose um, voice systems are uh, at end of life, um, starting to fall apart and need immediate replacement. So that would be another example. And the third one would be a customer that's spending lots of money on telecommunications and wants to be, find a way to reduce their costs. Fantastic. All right. So let's turn the tables now. Okay. So the Tech Talk magazine, let me talk a little bit about the Meadowlands USA. It's, it's, um, it's probably the largest chamber of commerce in New Jersey, and it caters to um, larger types of enterprises. And so when you think about where the stadium is, the, Met, uh, the MetLife Stadium is in that area, there's a lot of manufacturing, a lot of corporate businesses. It's a larger chamber. And part of what they do is they deliver a, a magazine, a printed magazine that gets done 10 times a year. And I'm part of a technical committee that supports the Chamber of Commerce. And we have a section in that magazine called uh, Tech Talk, and, uh, and we have different themes. And the theme that is going to be for the next two, three issues is all about cloud-based services. And I couldn't think of a better individual to talk about um, uh, cloud-based services and computing than yourself. So I, I'd, I'd really be interested in your perspective and how you got into cloud-based services, what types of services um, you're offering today, and, and more importantly, because I, I, I know that you've been very passionate lately about the Internet of Things and, and, and different types of ways of um, being communicating creatively. So I'm wondering whether your concept of the Internet of Things and uh, or the work that you're doing on the Internet of Things, how that came to be from your work on cloud-based services. Yeah, sure, for sure. We start with my history. So I've been in telecom for 20 years. Like yourself, I work for Avaya. You came in on the Nortel side. I came in from the Lucent uh, Avaya side. So I got to work with Avaya for Avaya for nine years. And then one year I worked at Avaya, but I was managing a partnership with Verizon. So I got to work out of a Verizon office for over a year. I got to see how the service providers work. Wait, which, which office did you work out of? Mainly uh, 36th Street in Manhattan. Uh, but, okay. I, but I did go around some of the other offices. So I got to see Garden City, now, now, the office in 36th Street, that was also a you know, central office, was it not? Yeah, yeah. It's, and and, and um, it also had um, a whole bunch of, um, um, uh, that's where they started building out co-location cages for, for Celex to install their equipment and connect back into Verizon. Right, that, that was a major center over there. Yeah. Uh, Another location I worked out of was somewhere in the Wall Street area. They have an office over there. Okay. So I worked for Avaya. I got to work with Verizon. And then for the last 11 years, I had my own business where I helped Avaya partners and resellers with installation and maintenance and support of their phone systems. Now, a couple of years ago, I uh, jumped on the cloud bandwagon. So I started getting really passionate about cloud. I noticed how the industry was shifting towards a subscription-based model. And this is basically how we started off our conversation today, where people were looking to save costs. And in some instances, cloud is better. In some instances, premise is better. What I noticed was 
a small business looking to start out, let's say, you know, two, three people, in some ways, cloud would be a perfect solution for them because they could be up and running in no time, like literally same day, and they have no commitments either. You know, if uh, things work out, they've got their services. If they don't work out, you know, just cancel the service and you're good to go. So I perceive the cloud as a great enabler for the small guy, the entrepreneur working out of his home, looking to start up a business. And, you know, that really, that really resonated with me. So I started doing a lot of research into cloud and I started uh, basically going into business with cloud-based solutions. So I started writing blog articles, uh, creating content on that. Uh, I even gave a speech on cloud, which is uh, basically it's all about how if you go back in time, let's say 10 years ago, and you wanted to start up, start up a business, um, you know, any, any kind of business, you know, what, would you, what were the costs that you would have to spend in order to start your business, right? So you would need, you would need a phone, you would need email, um, you would need uh, internet service, you would need a fax machine and a CRM, right? Those are basic tools that you need to start up a business. Okay, well, phone service back back in the day before the cloud-based services uh, were popular, if somebody were to just start up in his basement, you'd have to get a Verizon service, so they charge him a $55 connection fee, and then probably about $50 a month, which would just give him dial tone and nothing else. Um, but what happens when he's out of the office? So you're in the office, you, you pick up the phone, right? But what happens when you're out of the office? So now people are either going to get your antiquated answering machine or they're just going to hear ring, 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 right? So that's a turnoff. If, so when you're out of the office, your customers are going to someone else. What the cloud enables somebody to do is for $25 a month or $20 a month, they get this professional sounding automated attendant where it sounds like you have 15,000 people working at your company. Really, you're just this one man shop working out of your basement, working out of your grandmother's basement, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, you could have multilingual uh, gracias por llamada, you know, a company para español o prima dos. And, uh, you know, for Chinese press five and you can, you can have a, an entire global operation for 20 bucks a month. And then, you know, some of the other services I was going through, you know, like take a CRM. So, you know, cloud it goes so much more beyond communications. There's also cloud-based uh, cloud computing, right? So we have uh, a server, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, if you wanted to get ser a, a server for your office, you want to get email. Remember in the days when we had to get Microsoft Exchange, you had to get a server, $2,000, uh, you had to get a Windows license. You had to get an exchange uh, administrator. Before you know it, you're spending thousands of dollars just to get one email account. Whereas today for $6 a month, you sign up with Microsoft and you're good to go. Um, you know, CRM would cost $50,000 for a good CRM, you know, just for one seat. And today, yeah, you go to Zoho for free <laughs> or you pay $20 a month for Act or some other CRM and you have all the power and capabilities that the large enterprises had. So just 
learning about the cloud and understanding the benefits that it offered, it just got me really excited to work with, uh, with the cloud technology and to work in this industry. So that's how I started with cloud, how I migrated to the Internet of Things. So I basically followed the movement coming from telecom, right? So phone communication is called human-to-human communication, and the Internet of Things is called human-to-machine communication. So it was basically a progressive movement where I evolved my career from just human-to-human communication to expand all kinds of communications. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the technology today, everything is becoming smart. So we have smart homes, smart enterprises, and even smart cities. And it's not a stretch to think that in a few, few short years from now, you'll be able to know exactly when the bus is coming, where the bus is, you know, which bus is coming when, when the next train is coming, how many people are waiting in line at the snack bar. So you'll know whether or not you can go get yourself a sandwich while waiting for the train. So what I do with the Internet of Things, it's really exciting. I provide a middleware solution for manufacturers of smart devices. So think of your appliance manufacturers, your refrigerators, your coffee makers, your smart cameras, your thermostats. And I give them the ability to communicate with people using natural language over messaging channels that people are already using. So that means instead of having to download 50 apps to talk to your smart city, your smart kitchen, your smart enterprise, you just take out your cell phone and send a text message to your hot water heater to start heating because you want to come home and take a shower. So let's explore that a little bit. So really what you're doing is you're saying, let me take a a messaging application. I'll use WhatsApp as an example. And you're building this, this, this piece of middleware that's sitting in the cloud that says on the front end, it recognizes, it understands who I am, right? And what devices are sitting at the back end. And then at the, the back end of this piece of middleware, you're actually saying, take these messages that are coming from Peter that's, that says, I want to talk to my fridge or I want to talk to my uh, blood pressure monitor. And then you have channels in the back end that says, I know how to route that message to the device that Peter wants to talk to. Exactly. So this natural language processing, and in this industry, it's called NLP, not to be confused with uh, NLP, Neuro Linguistics Programming. Okay. Um, but this natural language processing is basically something that takes, takes place in the cloud, and it converts the human uh, commands to machine language. Okay. And part of it is an intelligent chatbot. So, so there are two components. One is the messaging component where you take the message from, let's say, WhatsApp and take that into the cloud and then convert that to machine language. But there's also artificial intelligence. So let's say your command is incomplete or let's say you've got spelling mistakes. So we utilize IBM Watson uh, for artificial intelligence where the chatbot is able to decipher, for the most part, what you mean to say. So I'll give you an example. We have a smart coffee maker, okay? So you could go to the coffee maker. If you were savvy, you would say, make me a, a black coffee, milk, two sugars, 
and the coffee maker will obediently oblige. Um, but what if you weren't that sophisticated and you just wanted a coffee? So you take out your phone, you WhatsApp your coffee maker, make me a coffee. Well, the artificial intelligent chatbot will respond and go, hey, you didn't tell me what kind of coffee you want. We make six kinds of coffees. Here is a list. You could have cappuccino, espresso, latte, so on and so on. Take your pick. Um, once you take your pick, you'll further analyze the commands to see, well, did you mention milk? Did you mention sugar? Um, it'll also check your history to see what kind of coffee you usually drink. And it may even suggest, would you like your usual coffee today? Uh, interesting. So let's break that down into some components. When a person is um, trying to communicate with the devices in their home, security is a, is a big concern. So, so how do you basically recognize that Peter is, is um, when he's piping WhatsApp to your middleware piece, uh, how do you recognize him and authenticate Peter? Yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, security is a very important part of the internet of things. It can't be overstated how important security is. So what we do with our technology, think of it as a lock and a key. So uh, we don't see this in, this in this part of the world, but in Israel, for example, there are no locks on the doorknob. Um, there's just two keyholes, one on either side. So if you want to get into the house or out of the house, you need a key. Okay. So you get into the house, you take the key, you unlock the door, you close the door. Now, then you put your key into the inside of the door and you turn the lock. And now nobody can open the door from the other side. Even if you had a physical key to the door, you cannot open the door because the key is in the lock. And as long as the key is in the lock, there's no picking, there's no nothing. That door is not opening. Okay. Okay. So this works in a, simil in a similar manner. The, uh, the way the technology works is that once you're authenticated, it maps your session ID on WhatsApp, for example. It maps it to the device that you're talking to, and it locks your session so that only you can get in and no one else. Okay. Now, you still want more people to be able to use it, right? Let's say, you know, in your house, you're not the only person who's going to be using your coffee maker. Your kids are going to want it. Your wife's going to want it. So this security mechanism enables you as the registered administrator to assign additional permissions. Now, it could be permanent or temporary. So if you have house guests, you could add their devices, their cell phones, onto your approved list of users. Okay. And now they're able to ask for coffee as well. Okay, so that, that kind of makes sense. So you have an authentication mechanism, with some rules and administrative privileges to say, these particular people um, are able to talk to these devices. Correct, yes. Okay. Where I lived uh, over in Pleasantville, New York, I was surrounded by a whole bunch of people that worked at IBM and um, including a couple that were involved in the Watson project that built the, um, the Jeopardy challenge where the Watson was, was a Jeopardy contestant. And it was fascinating to listen to the thought process and how they basically got Watson to be able to understand ambiguity in language. 
was just very, very fascinating. And so I assume that you can actually access Watson and it's sitting in the cloud somewhere? It's, it's in the cloud, yes. Wow. Basically, what you're doing is you're taking these queries and you're saying, I, I, I would like coffee, and it's an ambiguous query. And, and so Watson would come back and say, you know what? I need more information here before we can basically build the set of commands to talk to the device to get it to do what you want it to do. Yeah, exactly. And then that part of it comes from the programming, the additional parameters. Okay. And then the last piece is I assume that in the back end, you're building in Windows terms, you call them drivers, but really what you're, do, you're, you're doing is you're building channels to each device that takes the instructions and the language and yeah. builds it into, into actual commands that a particular device understands. So what you would call in the Windows world drivers, so we call connectors. Ah, yes. I was looking for that. I, I, sometimes I think too low level. Well, yeah, you know, I can appreciate the world you come from because that, you know, that's where yeah. I come from as well. So here's how that works. A device, so we're talking about coffee maker, so we'll continue with that, right? So the coffee maker has an API, okay? Uh, we have an API, our middleware API. So what we do is we build a connector where we take our technology and we write some code to integrate our commands to the API of the device. So that's where the translation from natural language to machine language takes place. So our technology processes the natural language commands, and then we translate that into machine language, which the device will understand by connecting to their API. Okay. So the last question that I would have here um, is I would assume that people would purchase this on a per transaction basis or is there a, what's the business model associated with accessing this technology or are there a number of uh, uh, different packages that are available to pay for this technology? Sure. And that is a great question uh, as well. So the business model works like this. To your point, there, there are a number of different ways that we work with people because the idea is that this is such hot technology that we want it to be a source of profit for the manufacturer as opposed to a cost. So we want it to be a profit center instead of a cost center. So we work with the business to come up with the best way to price this. So as an example, there's a development cost. We build integration between our technology and the device. And then there is a, our business model is really the messaging. So the messages that go back and forth, the WhatsApp message, the SMS text message, and we bundle it similar to a cell phone plan where we bundle it by the million messages. Okay, so we have a million message bundle for a certain price. That's our primary business model. Now, many times working with smaller companies, we get to be more creative because sometimes that may not work for them up front, but on the back end, if we work strategically with them to find a way to implement our technology so that they're making money off of it and it ends up being more profitable for us and better for them. If I can repeat what you just said is, is there's a, 
usually to build a connector, there's, there's a one-time development cost to do that and to do the integration. And if it's, suppose I, I'm a manufacturer of coffee machines, that would be for, to my benefit, to basically do this integration so that the charge to the user, the end user, such as myself, would be minimal. I would want to buy that coffee maker because it has that capability to turn itself on and off. Right, exactly. Um, and if you think about it today, people have so little time. Everyone is so pressed for time. Mm -hmm. So anything that could save people time is very attractive. So think about the coffee maker, right? Um, you've got your Bluetooth headset on. So could you imagine this? We go pick up our phone and go, hey, Siri, send a text message to UIB test. What do you want to say to UIB test? Make coffee. Your message is, make coffee. Ready to send it? Yes. I'll send your message. Okay, so what does that do for you? You're a single parent. You've got to get your kids ready for school. You're also the CEO of a company and you're getting ready for a presentation. And you've got to do all of that simultaneously. You have no time for breakfast. All you want is a coffee and I'll get you out the door. You don't even have time to take out your cell phone and hit the app to make the coffee. So you've got your Bluetooth headset on and all you need to do is speak to your coffee maker and just tell it to make you coffee. Now, arguably, we have Amazon Alexa that does the same thing as well. So what's the differentiator? In some applications, they're the perfect fit for it. But in many applications, what I just demonstrated right now, the ability to take Siri and have it make coffee for you, you can go grocery shopping from the street, from work, around the world. You know, I was just in Israel. I could have very easily have stocked my refrigerator back home in New York using Siri because it doesn't care where I am. I don't have to be within a certain range. You know, with Amazon Alexa, I've got this device sitting on my table and I have to be with an audible range of that device. There's no extension. Mm -hmm. so that's what it gives you. So it's more than just a novelty. It gives people back time in their day. So as trivial as it seems, it's actually extremely valuable. So we talked a lot about the applications being things in the home, right? What are some of the other applications that can really benefit from from this technology sure so let's take something like agriculture today's agricultural industry relies heavily on the internet of things i i met with some farmers at a uh, tech meetup a while ago and they're basically talking about the challenges that the agricultural industry faces today and one of them is the aging of uh, the farm managers. So in the olden days, people worked in silos and everything was kept in the head. Nothing was written down, nothing was passed on and that was their competitive edge because nobody knew what they knew and they weren't sharing it, right? So as the generation is turning over, 
when this guy retires, forget it. This whole farm is finished. All this intellectual property that they have, meaning how the crops are planted, how, how the crops are harvested, when they're watered, what kind of fertilizer you use, all that, it's all going to be lost because nobody documented it. One of the things that the Internet of Things is helping with, this is something that's not even so obvious, is that it is collecting analytics on everything you do. Whatever sensors you deploy, that gets accessed by some cloud service, and then that gets logged. So now you're the farm owner. You're no longer reliant on any one person to make or break your farm or business, okay? So, you know, let's think big, enterprise. So by deploying the, the internet of things in an agricultural environment, you are providing yourself with the security to be able to perpetuate your farm, to retain your intellectual property, regardless of who is working at your business. Okay. What about the medical industry and the advances in technology to be able to monitor different capabilities of a person's body? Like, for example, my blood pressure fluctuates and, um, and sometimes it spikes to very, very high levels. And so I take my blood pressure every morning and then, and then if it gets high, I take it three, four times a day. Um, what if there was an, an appliance that was on my, my wrist? that would be able to monitor that and say, you know what, I'm going to send a text message to, um, um, to send an alert to somebody to basically say, Peter's blood pressure has really gone haywire. Yeah. In fact, it's actually a very real application. So I did a demo the other day of this technology. Today, they have so many integrated devices that a person with a medical condition can live at home without having to go to a nursing home, without having to have even a living caregiver because the technology is monitoring this person 24 seven. So just to name a few kinds of technologies that are in use working together in an environment like that. So, you know, you've got a, a blood pressure monitor and, you know, it could be just a, a watch like this, you know, a smart watch. It uh, measures the blood pressure. They have smart textiles. So in your clothing, there are leads that measure your heart rate. So you could take EKG and all that is being monitored 24-7. There are smart scales. So every time you weigh yourself, that also gets logged. So if there's an anomaly, let's say somebody that has a condition, is living at home alone, may not be eating right, and after a few days, their weight goes down, somebody gets alerted. That gets sent to a WhatsApp group where the caregiver, the nurse, the doctor, they all get notified that, hey, something's amiss. Check up on them. They have smart cups that measure how much fluid you're drinking. One of the most innovative things that I've come across recently on a trip to Israel. So there's a company that specializes in radar technology. They're a 3D sensor company utilizing radar if you think of a radar, you have the radar signal that bounces off a point and it measures the distance between the sensor and whatever point it hit and it knows how far away it is, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what if you had a device that had multiple radar antennas on it? 
So they make this device that has 20 or so radar antennas that could give you a really good composite picture of what's going on, but without getting a visual. So think of situations where privacy is of a concern, somebody that may fall in the shower. You would never know because there are no cameras in the shower for privacy reasons. But if you put a camera like that, a radar-based camera in the shower, you can see a sketch of a person and you could see if that person's okay. Same thing if somebody gets up middle of the night and falls down and hurts themselves. So the radar can see in the dark. You don't need light in order to see uh, what's going on. So now this camera is hooked up to a text message or to a WhatsApp or a Facebook group and can message the appropriate people if there is a problem. Fascinating. When you, when you think about keeping people uh, independent, particularly elderly people, and then keeping them in their homes and, and being able to detect when something's not gone right, right without invading their privacy, there's lots of potential applications for this. For sure. And, and you know, just one last thing on this healthcare industry. Let's say, God forbid, there is a situation, right? The person collapsed, he had a heart attack or fell over, right? Time is of the essence. The quicker this person gets medical care, the better. And what this technology has the capability of doing is messaging people, multiple people simultaneously. The ambulance gets called right away. The hospital is alerted. The doctor knows that this person is on his way to being transported to the hospital so that all these arrangements can be made simultaneously. But not only that, it's there to prevent the heart attack in the first place. So when the EKG in the smart textile and the smart garment notices an anomaly, that sends a message to the nurse who then picks up the phone and calls the person and says, hey, what's going on? Are you under stress? Is something the matter? And tries to prevent a situation from happening in the first place. Now, are these smart garments, when you put them on, are they sophisticated enough that you don't have to put on suction cups or that they, they can actually de detect just from the garment and the wires and the instrumentation in the garment that um, all a person has to do is, is, is wear it, put it on? I'm actually speaking with one manufacturer that is uh, in the middle of developing a garment that looks just like any other garment and are actually embedded so that you don't have to wear anything. You don't have to wear any of the suction cups or any of the things that are uncomfortable and it just looks and feels like a normal shirt. Because that simplicity is, is, is key to getting these applications out there and getting them deployed uh, by, by large numbers of people. As you stated earlier in, in your introduction, uh, life is so complex and so complicated that if the technology is not dead simple to use, and, and that was the lesson from the iPhone, is, is when the iPhone came out, it was just so intuitive and so easy to use that it took off and cell phone technology really began to take off. I would assume that the makers of smart technologies are going to have to be very, very sensitive to that in order for this technology to take hold. Yeah, for sure. And simplicity is the key. Yeah. I can't 
Thank you enough, uh, Abraham. This, this has been just an absolutely fascinating discussion. I only have two pages in the tech talk, but I, I think I know what I'd like to put together. Awesome. Peter, do you have any parting words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience? I am um, going to quote from uh, an astronaut, Canadian astronaut. I, I'm from Canada. I grew up in Montreal. And there's a book that was put together. Uh, it was written by Chris Hadfield, who was, uh, um, who was the commander of the International Space Station and went off on a couple of space shuttles. Um, uh, he, was, uh, he had flown the space shuttle. And he wrote a book about lessons that everyone can learn from astronauts. And it's all pretty simple. It's a plan, pay attention, always think about what can go wrong in, in your daily life, and then plan for it and, and, and address it, you know. And, you know, he gives the example as, as an astronaut. One of the things you worry about is, is well, what if I'm not around, if there's an accident in, in space? And so, you know, you you got to put a will together, right? And then you have to put a plan for what does the family do without these things. And, and I think the, you know, the words of his wisdom is we often plan for what goes right. But I, I think we need to plan in a healthy fashion what can go wrong and then what are the things that you can do to minimize the consequences of when things do go wrong, um, how do you minimize those consequences? So that, that's my words of wisdom <laughs> from uh, Chris Hadfield. And he said it so much more eloquently than I ever could. <laughs> that's really great. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. And I uh, really enjoyed having you. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm glad we were able to turn the tables here a little bit. Yeah, and, it was uh, definitely fun. All the best to you and have a good weekend.